Everybody okay? Right, on with the main event. Um, we've got some lovely books here. I think uh, Amanda and Jez have uh, fallen in love with our guest. And this is one of the books of the year, that's for sure, I'll tell you. And um, we've got these lovely music from Big Pinks. This is a, this was the first publication, wasn't it? It was yeah. the first book I ever... Yeah. Good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm John. <laughs> um, yeah, the first novel. That's where it all started, isn't it? Look at that. As if 20, by fate. <laughs> 20 years ago this year, I started. Bloody hell. Nine English pounds, <laughs> and cheaper than Amazon, 17 English pounds. <laughs> I can okay. sign them and devalue them for you. <laughs> I think that's all I've got to say. So I'm going to uh, introduce, first of all, a friend of us all, Mr Ian Clayton. And one of my very favourite authors, and, and, and if it isn't already, he's going to be one of yours, I'll tell you. His books are fantastic. They're, everyone's different and uh, what more can I say please please give a great welcome the great John Niven thank you thank you thank you uh, unbelievable to be here in an old school pub that actually has coal fires I couldn't <laughs> believe that wasn't some living flame bullshit there's actual coal of course we're in the north east you're burning coal it's good well, while you go outside for a piss <laughs> <laughs> I'm not keeping it that real. Um, I, I hadn't read any of, of John's books until Monday this week, and I've read two since since Monday. Um, I read I read Big Pink first. It's a novella, so you can read that in a few hours, and then I came to this one, and well. For obvious reasons that you all you all in here know, I, I didn't know whether I could read a book about the death of of a family member, um, and such a, a coruscating one as this as this is. It's it's. Uh, but I, I braved myself, and I started reading it yesterday morning, and I finished it. I laid up bed for an hour this afternoon, and uh, I I finished it. And in both cases. I've finished these books with a strange feeling. Uh, I don't know what the word is for it. The, the Germans will have a word for it, as they always do. Um, <laughs> but it's that feeling that you get when you've got to end of a book and you don't know what to do. When I, when I finish this one, I... I das Ende geschrieben. It could be. Das Ende no, geschrieben. I'm making the, that the up. End <laughs> absolutely talking out my fucking arse. <laughs> <laughs> the end of writing that translates us it's, a, it's an amalgam of Scottish and German <laughs> um, and I, no I, I when I finished the big pink one I, I, um, I yeah I rang him up I put, I put big pink record on then I finished me, re, uh, me crossword in record time my mind was so quick and thinking and I did me the crossword in the I newspaper in less than five minutes so that wasn't bad <laughs> And then I thought, well, can I read this one now? And I, I, I did. The th I mean, the thing is, you know that I wrote Our Billy, and I've never read Our Billy. I've never read my own book. Did, have, have you read this since it came out? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, I never ever read my own stuff. That's yeah, uh, it's painful. The, uh, the only time you have to read your own books is I, I tend to write three drafts of a book, maybe three in a bit. And the, the most fun part is writing the first draft. Because as George Orwell said, when you're writing the first draft, you're writing it to kind of find out what you think. And then you have to refine that. The worst part of it is reading the first draft back because you think you've written this piece of genius and then actually in the cold light of day, when you have to read it back. Um, the unpleasant analogy I use is like it's being forced to watch a home movie of yourself masturbating. It's just <laughs> fucking horrific. I would, I'd pay a great sum of money never to have to do that. And then you have to get through that and then you begin the process of redrafting the book, you know? Um, but I was talking to Amanda just before I, I, we started. The the part where I kind of did have to read it again was to do the audiobook, <clears throat> which I've never done before. I've never done the audiobook of any of my books. Um, I've never even listened to one of the audiobooks, one of my books. Uh, and the, uh, Sunshine Cruise Company was narrated by Rula Lenska. So certain men here of a certain age might get the resonance <laughs> of this. Is so, so, some some priest of laughter in the room lets me know that you, you know for younger readers. He was a rock folly maniac. Yeah, so <laughs> for, for younger readers, imagine Alexa Chung or whoever the fuck you know you go with God. Um, so, I, but even then, I couldn't listen to it. But so when they asked me to do the audiobook of this, I initially said no, and the publisher said. You got to do it. It's too personal. We can't hire an actor to tell this story of you and your family and your brother. And so I said, Well look, I'll do a test run. I'll do half an hour and if you think it's good enough and they, they did, you know. It's difficult because I, in my mind I sound like David Niven, the actor, and then and then I hear Begbie coming out or you know, or, or Rab C Nesbit. I'm like, Who the fuck is that guy? you know? So uh, it's difficult, tightrope for me. Um, but yeah, so I had to read the book again, uh, doing the audiobook, which was painful. Not for the reasons people think, the emotional reasons, it's more technical. You just constantly think, I could have phrased that better, that could have been a little cleaner, you know. Um, but it was interesting because the young kid who was engineering the, the audiobook, who was, only, I guess, 27, 28, like my son's age, um, He'd, he hadn't read the book, and uh, we had to stop the recording three or four times because he was in tears. And it's difficult because you have conflicting emotions as a human and a parent. You're kind of thinking, oh, God. And then as a writer, you're thinking, I've got this motherfucker now. I'm back of the net sort of thing. Because, because you know, I, I said that in an interview when the book came out. I, you know, you're, um, if you're trying to write properly, if you're trying to do the real thing at the top of the game... You're trying to break people's hearts. That's what you're about, you know. But it's, as a as an author, you rarely get to see that happen in real time because you know you're not. Thankfully, you're not in somebody's bedroom when they're reading your book. That would be that'd be bad. <laughs> so sorry, I've rambled. No, no, no it's interesting. It's interesting. That, I mean, the one thing I I thought when I did that my book on this kind of subject was, I felt guilty twice because I felt guilty because of what had happened but I felt guilty that I was spreading it onto other people as as well mm. but then I thought no I, I need to tell this story because it, it's stories need to be told mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what, that's what I thought. C.S. Lewis famously said that we read to know that we're not alone. Yeah. So literature in its most powerful form, I think, just connects that. It's like, uh, you know, if you hear a thing that someone expresses in prose a sensation or a thought that you've had and you thought it was just you who kind of thought that or felt that, and then you realise, oh no, that's that's universal, you know, that's yeah, the yeah. biggest one. Yeah. But it's very, just as you were holding those books up earlier, Rev, it just struck me, I've never done an event, it's very interesting for me personally, because you have the first book I ever wrote 20 years ago and the most recent book I've ever written. I've never been asked to, to talk about these two things in conjunction, so it's like, it kind of feels like, tonight, John Evan, this is your life. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's like 20 years of work sort of bookended. Yeah. We need to... We, the, this this the album that we're going to listen to tonight is is the band the second album by by the band but this book concerns the first album by the band music from big pink and it's it imagines a scenario uh in woodstock where where the band lived in the big pink house and the story seen through the eyes of of a, of a, a young drug dealer who uh, is on the periphery of all the movement it's a very filmic book. I, I saw John. It, it's there's a there's a scene in it near the beginning of the book where the dealer and his girlfriend are coming. I think they've been to see the graduate at the pictures, yeah. and they're coming back. And you describe the windscreen of the car they're travelling in as a, as a movie screen with all the cars and the lights and the the town going going by, and it's almost like a metaphor for what the book is. It, it's it's a it's a series of almost like film shots mm. going through it. Is that deliberate? Well, I, it might be slightly accidental. And I, I wrote two, two or three screenplays before I wrote a novel. And that kind of influence might be apparent in the prose. Um, because when you start out as a writer, it, when I was thinking about writing a, a novel, it's kind of scary because you're thinking I'm stepping in the same footsteps of James Joyce and Jane Austen and... Whereas with the screenplay, I thought, well, I could probably take on the guy that wrote Sex Lives of the Potato Men or, you know, If Girls Are Easy or whatever. It seemed more accessible. And also screenplays are shorter, you know, they're only 120 pages, whereas novels are three and 400. It just seemed more uh, approachable to me. Of course, I, I got that completely wrong. What have I now I write both. I, I work in Los Angeles as a screenwriter and I work here as a novelist primarily. Um, I actually find screenplays much harder to write than novels. For Novels are all about the expansion and the accretion of detail. You want to crawl into a moment in as much detail as you can stand and go as far with it as you can. Whereas screenplays are all about economy and compression and how quickly can you say your thing. You know, how, how much can you condense an image or some dialogue to get the point across. Um, so they're two very antithetical disciplines. But when I wrote Big Pink, I was kind of coming out having written a couple of screenplays, so maybe that's in there in the, in the prose. It feels like it. It but really does. The, the interesting thing about the, this book uh, and where it ties into the band is I often get asked, oh, so you must have been dying to write a novel about the band. And I wasn't at all. I had the idea for the story before I thought to involve the band in it. So, in brief, the novel's about a small-time drug dealer who moves to Woodstock around the time the, the band and Bob Dylan are making these records and becomes involved in their scene. 
Um, and I'd worked in the music industry for 10 years. I started writing this book in 2003, which was the year I left the music industry to rashly try and become a writer. And I'd, I'd been there, uh, without telling too many personal stories, I'd been around a few drug dealers. And I, I, I thought it was a kind of fascinating lifestyle. And that if you're a drug dealer, especially if you're around a big band at the peak of their success, you have incredible entree. You're the first guy in the dressing room. You're on the private jet. You're in the limb because you've got the gear. You're, you know, Mr. Popular. So when you're maybe 25, 26 and you're a drug dealer, that's an incredibly seductive, powerful way of life. However, I didn't notice too many of these guys retiring happily at the age of 45 to enjoy life in their country pile with their small children. Their stories seemed to all end in ruin and either drug addiction or debt or murder or some kind of lunacy. So I thought, gosh, that, that's quite an interesting life trajectory for a, a novel, you know, from a very successful happening drug dealer who's around a really happening group at 25 and then ending up almost destitute and drug addicted at 45, 50. And it was quite late in the process of thinking about this story that I thought of the band because the... i tell you what might help if we play the first clip here. That would actually be quite good if we... We come into the story in the novel in 1967. Number eight, I think, which is... You know, the band playing with them, it's just this incendiary, powerhouse, loud, trace of fire, rock and roll every night. And so by the end of that tour, the fact that they sort of went off and made a soft, acoustic, understated album was no surprise, because that's probably what they were dying to do. But the rock myth that grew around it was that they all moved up to Woodstock from New York City and lead, led these suddenly very quiet, bucolic pastoral lives. But as I'm sure everyone in this room knows, old habits die hard. And as I researched the subject more, they were all parting up there in Woodstock as hard or harder than they ever had on the road. Um, they just happened to be doing it in the woods rather than hotel rooms around you know, the, the world. And so I suddenly thought, God, that's a really seductive setting for a book the, the hills and the valleys and the lakes and the mountains of Woodstock with these young guys who were still, you know, when Robbie Robertson started playing with them, he was 22 so they're still young men they're only 23, 24 at this point and as well, any of you here who has kids, only 23 and 4 year olds those guys are lunatics I mean I was a lunatic at 23, 24 so they, they, they were parting really hard while they were creating this very soft sort of pastoral music. So that alone was fascinating. Then I thought if I could marry that with my story about this drug dealer, we might be on something. And, you know. It's a peculiar mix. Well, it's, it's not so peculiar these days, but it's... What do we call it? Faction? It's, Faction, it, yeah. It, no, it's... It, it's um, Real people are in it, uh, but uh, uh, there's also made-up people in it as well, although even the made-up people might be based on, on, on real people. What the, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, there's precedence for this. Truman, Truman Capote obviously was a medium. He worked in faction, taking sort of real-life events and then fabricating a fiction around it. But the, 
the reason I did it was if you look at the list of um, rock books with fictional bands that are good, that's a short fucking list. I mean, you've maybe got Roddy Doyle's The Commitments. There's, it, there's not many because, sorry to insult your, your favourites, Rev, but it's so easy to end up with Rock Follies with somebody like really uh, or, 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 or Grange Hill sort of band, you know, it's just some, it just, people can smell it a mile off, I think, when you read, Daisy Jones and the Six, I guess, was a recent example that the book kind of worked, you know, TV show, I thought it was a bit airbrushed, Fleetwood Mac, light, um, but, you know, it's difficult to pull off. People can smell, especially especially real music people, as I'm sure we all are here, um, can smell a fake a mile off. But I thought if I put my fictional characters in this milieu with real people, then it, it might work. And I guess one of the liberties I took was the, the, the guys from the band who feature most in the novel are Rick Danko and Richard Mammel, who were both dead at the time of writing. So... I kind of thought, well, they're not going to sue me. We'll, we'll, we'll see how the rest of it goes. And, uh, and and Dylan in the novel is a kind of... Dylan's a kind of spectral presence in it. He's in the background in a lot of scenes. But there's no a great scene... Sorry, John, I've been talking to you, but there's a great scene where um, we first meet Dylan in, in, in the book and it's at a... They took party, but everybody's at the party already. Then he walks in with his, his mad yeah. entourage. And it sucks the air out the room. It sucks the air out the room, and everybody put, transfers <laughs> the weight from one foot to the other and yeah. pretend to be looking at the carpet yeah. or anyway, pretend to avert their eyes. Yeah. And then I, Dylan sits down, and he's got a fag in his hand, and you say it's like a fuse. Smoldering like a fuse. Yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's still a man who's about to blow up, isn't he? Well, I think he's... Uh, the presence of Bob Dylan in American culture circa 1967 was so enormous. You know, outside of the Beatles, there really wasn't MD in the same hemisphere. Um, and so uh, Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, owned this huge house in Budcliffe, which is now, interestingly, owned by Neil Gaiman. And Neil invited me to go and stay there the other year when I was in New York. He said, I'll come up for the weekend and see... Because Neil Gaiman's a big fan of music from Big Pink, what we're talking about. Obviously, Neil is far richer than I, and he literally owns fucking Albert Grossman's old house, Budcliffe. Uh, and I said, I was in New York with my daughter, for whatever reason, and I said, yeah, you know, maybe this weekend. He's like, he, he, he went, I wouldn't be there, of course, but the staff will let you in. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to your house to hang out with the cleaner. No offence to cleaner, but you know. <laughs> um, so, the, um, the Grossman would have these parties, and uh, it would be a mixture of sort of local musicians and hippies, and the band, some of the band would be there, and sometimes Dylan would come in. But, uh, yeah, the scene you talk about, Ian, was just uh, imagining the, the, the weight of Bob Dylan at that time entering a room like that, you know? What, what decisions do you have to make, then? If, if you're going to write a book that's part fiction and part based on factual events, surely you've got to get... You've got to know things about the characters for them to be the characters that they really are. 
You, yeah. they, you can't put words into their mouth that they wouldn't no. utter. You can't put thoughts in their mind that no. perhaps they wouldn't no. utter. Well, it's difficult because, you know, over here we've got the crown, which has made fast fortunes worldwide and been watched by millions of people doing exactly what you just said. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I, I mean, I'd lived with the band's music at that point when I started writing the novel since the sort of late 80s. Maybe worth saying a bit about this about how I came to the band. When I, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I was, I, I was a guitar player in the 1980s in a band called The Wishing Stones, and when I was 21, we all dropped acid one night. I don't remember why we had acid. Oh, yeah, there was a reason. We, we, oh, there may be some digressions tonight that tell you more <laughs> about me than you want to, to learn, but we'd been on tour in Southampton, and this fan had come backstage. And he said, oh, we've got really great acid in Southampton. I'll send you some sometime. And like, well, all right. And never took any notice of it. And then a couple of weeks later, the mail came. And this package of microdots from this lunatic in Southampton. We're like, the fuck? And then, oh, this guy's crazy. And then later that night, we'd had a few pints and thought, yeah, well, <laughs> And Bill Prince, who was the singer in our band, he was that kind of thing, he was four years older than me, which is a big thing when you're in early 20s, I guess I was 21 and Bill was 25, and he said have you ever heard the band? And I went, no and, uh, I, I think a lot of people, he said have you ever heard the band? I went, what fucking band? And uh, he put on the night they drove all Dixie down. What year is this? What this year? was 1987 Right. Okay. Um, so you're 21. I'm 21, yeah. and so we're coming up in acid, and we're listening to the band. And I was like, "Holy fucking Christ!" It, just, it, well, it made you want to say, "Your guitar and fire, how good these guys were." It was just musically, it was like everyone was on pirouettes, like in ballet. Everyone's on points, like just stepping in and out of each other so precisely compared to what we were trying to do at the time. It just blew my mind apart, and of course with the a great stereo and with that and the drugs it was just like they were in the room it just absolutely melted my mind but subsequently of course I listened to the records without the addition of LSD you thought yeah these are really you know this is amazing amazing music so the thing about that is though being 1987 music I don't know if any of you know the theory that in architecture Buildings are at their greatest risk of demolition 70 years after they're built. So they're not quite old enough to be regarded as classic vintage and they're not quite young enough to be worth keeping. In rock music, I think that time lag is probably 10 to 15 years after the music's made where it hasn't quite had enough time to embed itself in the culture and people to realise how good it is and it's not quite new enough for the kids to like it. So at the point we got into the band in 1987, it was really unfashionable music. It was these old, weirdy beardies that people were just like, what the fuck's that? You know, you play it to my friends who are the same age as me, and they're going, I mean, you may as well show them some sort of paedophilia promotion. It was just like, what the fuck is this? They couldn't comprehend it. But, of course, what happened, it took a decade to happen, but when we got to the end of the 90s and then suddenly you had Wilco and you had Ryan Adams and you had all these people, the band were the, one of their primary reference points and suddenly it became... As I was, an, I was an A&R guy in the music industry and you couldn't throw a stick down the street for hitting people who would name-drop the band. But at the point where I discovered them in the late 80s, it, it was the, the most unfashionable reference point you can imagine. So... 
to circle back to your question, by the time I got to writing this novel, I'd been living with the band and music intimately for 15 years, and we're fortunate in that there is quite a lot of video footage of the band, so I kind of had an idea. And also, I knew musicians. I know how musicians talk to each other. I know what it is to be a young, you know, guy in a band and the kind of things that go on. So I was just infusing both those things. Although I won't deny your question is valid, Ian. Um, mm -hmm. I'll, t I'll tell you guys this in comment. I spent six months about, not last year, the year before, working on the Rolling Stones biopic for um, Disney FX, which is a huge budget thing that personally I think will probably never see the light of day for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I spent six months being driven mad in this project, not by the band. My, my, my good friend Mick Jagger was absolutely... <laughs> Mick was great, um, but a lot of the people around the project, and one of the difficulties in that, I had, I had dinner recently with the... I eventually quit the project because it was just too difficult. And I had dinner recently with the writer David Nichols, who wrote One Day, Mary mm -hmm. and David said, oh, I got offered that gig after you left. And he goes, I just, I couldn't, he goes, I wanted the money, but I just couldn't say yes, because I thought, who the fuck am I to make up things for Keith Richards to say? <laughs> I think what Keith meant to say. <laughs> Never been that confident. Um, I, I didn't, I think in the instance of this, like I said earlier, I kept, the main characters from the band were going to always going to be Rick Dank and Rich Manwell because I knew they kind of they went around to argue, I guess. Um, as a leap, you know, and it's something you're right to ask the question. It does now and again make me uneasy. Um, but you know, that's that's um, that's art when you see when you roll those dice sometimes. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, and I've just realised it now. You've in the middle of that answer, you said how blown away you were when you first the band the the main character in your book is blown away in the yeah. same way he gets a white label promo he's at his house and he's trying to finish a song of his yeah. own and Richard Manuel comes in and tries to help him write the song yeah. and, and says oh and by the way there's a white label promo for you Yeah. and he listens to the white label promo and he rips his song up and throws it away in, doesn't in he, he yeah. realises yeah, cause I'm well, never going to compete. At that point in that story, Greg is me at 21. I, I guess, yeah. Hearing that, you know. Well, I've just guessed now, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's uh, kind of, it seemed, looking back now, the guys, that clip we just saw, were only a year or two older than I was when I was in the Wishing Stones, but unlike them, I hadn't spent, you know, you know already at that point, I guess, seven years touring the, the bar rooms of America with Ronnie Hawkins and sort of learning their trade, you know, because for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you here do, it looks like a, there's a lot of heads in the room. But if you don't, the, the band spent sort of the first half of their career from about 1958 through to about 65 in complete obscurity, just playing bar, you know, covers band, like somewhere you go before there were discos. And then the second half of their career after they hooked up with Bob Dylan was a stratospheric fame, so it's two very different things. So I think that clip now of the... Is she sends me a bike frame a leap and she makes me I don't have to speak but she defends me. It's interesting that you said you know, all of these weird bands dressed in old fashioned clothes doing this weird old American music. It must have been strange even at the time. Yeah, yeah. Because there you are, there's four Canadians and a and a a, a 
cracker from Alabama. <laughs> and and uh, they, they, they are dressed different to everybody else who was making music in 1967 and 8. Uh -huh. They've not got any colours on them for a yeah, start yeah. off. And well, they're singing about truck drivers and railway workers. I, and In some ways it's familiar. If you look at the, the moustaches and the hair and the bushiness, it kind of looks like 1967, 68. There's slight hippie-ish touches. But then again, it's tweed jackets and it's suits yeah. and when people were wearing, like, caftans. It's just odd. But the thing, when, you, when I watch a clip like that, that always strikes me, it's like, if you got one of those guys in a band... You'd have been fucking laughing, you know. Yeah. Rick Danko front of the band, or Lee Von Helm front of the band, or yeah. you know, Richard Manwell front of the band, and you'd three of them in the band, along with a musical genius like Garth Hudson and a songwriter like Robbie yeah. Robertson. And I, sometimes I think about that, and I just think, "Fuck you! Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> what, the, what were the gods drinking that night when they threw the dice for you? I mean, it's just it's." Uh, but it's, inter it's interesting subject matter as well, John. That, that, I, I mean, 67, a lot, a lot of the top bands are singing about mind expansion uh, or protest songs mm. or they've done what Dylan's done, they've moved away from the protest songs to full-on electric, surreal music. Mm. And these are singing about railway workers, farmers, mm -hmm. southern Dixieland yeah, and, yeah. and all this... And that's out a, a, a bit anachronistic as well, isn't it? Well, and the big thing that caused controversy at the time was the, the inner gatefold photograph and the big pink arm, which was the band with all their extended families photographed in front of a barn, which it's hard for us to understand now that, that was shocking, but it was very... Robbie Robertson kind of said this. At the time, it was the height of the Vietnam War. I guess it's kind of analogous to the way things are in America now with Trump where families can barely sit down to Thanksgiving dinner together because Uncle Steve's going to be a Trump fan and somebody else, you know. And there's so much war and tension. And the photograph they had in the record with him with all the extended families was very much like, um, we're about, we're about family and uh, honouring some of those traditional roots even in these difficult times. So... That was quite a controversial stance at the time when the culture was very much about fuck your parents, you know? They didn't really, you know, and there's a, on this record, there's an incredible song by Richard Manuel called um, Independence Day, um, which about, you know, it's kind of about fathers and daughters and fighting and family and love, just things that were very unfashionable about that time that, you know, and and it was felt in the culture because when, when they put this record out, Eric Clapton, who was at that point with Cream, is is out there and the kind of free noodling and kind of you know, like, as you could get, kind of went, yeah, everything Anthony's a pile of shit. What have what have I done with my life? Yeah. <laughs> he completely rethought his whole his whole business model. Yeah, and I mean the Beatles are affected by it as well because mm. it, it wasn't released over over here, but that that. That A. Jude album that they released in America, they look like the band on yeah. on, on, on yeah. that of the Beatles. They've all, they've all got on the big beards. And yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, George, George, to go back to the kind of scene you were talking. There's another scene in, in my novel where they're, they're sitting about a jam session after the pub one night back at Big Pink, which used to happen regularly, and Robbie Robertson's playing the guitar. 
and he does that thing where he clips pegs a harmonic, which is not to get too technical in the guitar playing front, where you hit a note with the plectrum and the edge of your thumb at the same time, and it makes the note kind of ring with an extra bite, which Robin Robertson was like a master of, which he stole kind of from Roy Buchanan for getting technical. But that's fine. Um, and I just in the book I describe it as he would do this, and his hand would flutter like a shot bird like in the air while the note rang out and like George Harrison would go to that house and he would sit there and watch in astonishment just as as Greg did and I guess there are technical reasons for this I think if you if you came via the kind of way the Beatles came you came and the Beatles were a covers band for a long time too but you were learning covers of kind of pop and music hall and rock songs, so it was all kind of chordal-based and um, structured pop music. With the band grew out of a culture of blues and country and bluegrass music, which is a different tradition of sort of jamming, where musicality and soloing and these things have a different precedence. So I think something like George Harrison being dropped into that milieu and it blows my mind still to this day to think of it. Like, you know, when one of the Beatles in 1968, you know, the you know the biggest phenomenon music had ever seen or likely to ever see, would be sitting there in the living room at Woodstock getting offered the guitar, and he's going, oh, "I'm all, I'm all right, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you." <laughs> just let, let's just talk about Woodstock just for a, a minute here, just to give a context for it. Woodstock's a, a tiny little town. North of is it north of New York or west yeah, west of New York? Yeah, not not North New York. Yeah, and it's it's very rural. Um, it's had a, rap, a reputation as an artistic place for a century or more because yeah, yeah. all the artists used yeah, to yeah. go there at one time, didn't they? And have the orgies in the woods. It, it's a big thing, I guess, was in the 1920s and 30s, the sort of Birdcliffe colony. That was similar to the Bloomsbury movement here. A lot of the arts and crafts movement, both in carpentry and woodworking and art. And then the first guy to colonise it from the rock wall was Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, who I think was just was probably aware of its historic significance. But it's only it's about a two and a half hour drive from New York City, which in American terms is like the petrol station. You know, it's like mm. fifteen minutes. They are very fucking lunatics, aren't they? The country's gigantic. They don't think anything. You meet whenever you. I've done readings in America. Yeah, we drove four hundred miles to come here. And I'm like, mm. are you out your fucking mind? I would. <laughs> one of my kids was in fire. I might drive four hundred miles, but they think nothing of those kind of distances over no, there. No. I, so like two and a half hours out of the city is like next door. So Dylan uh, Grossman bought this house upstate, and then. Gradually, I think Dylan, after... And the myth, again, is that Bob Dylan had his motorcycle accident and decided to recuperate in the country. It wasn't quite like that. I think he, he, Dylan was absolutely fried on amphetamines and cocaine and heroin by the end of that tour, and it was like, I've got to get out of New York. So he followed Grossman up to, to Woodstock, and there was a lot to like, you know, and then, then the band followed because Dylan wanted to do some demos, and then... Then, as it says in the novel, people, the drug, you know, and it was kind of not as bad as it was today. We have a situation now that Manhattan is kind of like Chelsea or Notting Hill. You can't live there unless you're a Russian banker. It's just gone. But back then, Manhattan was still really expensive, but Woodstock was, you know, 
maybe 60 bucks a month to rent a place. So gradually people followed. And There's a lovely scene in the book where all, all the weekend dippies are coming up in their Volkswagen Beetles with their potted plants and yeah. record collections under their arms. And yeah. It's a great scene. It really sets it, it. It's a very small window, I think, between the really super cool people moving in and the place being quite cool, and then, you know, it becomes... Like what happened in San Francisco at round yeah, about the it, same it, time. It, it yeah, it suddenly becomes every, you know, everyone thinks, oh, this is a great time, you know, and yeah. it, it suddenly... As we know in any scene, musically or culturally, it's a quite a small window when it's cool, and then... I'm, I'm just looking... We're going to run out of time, John. Oh, we better yeah, talk sorry. about We're going to better talk about the album that we're going to listen to. You've chosen the, the, the second album. Well, uh, the, 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 these two records are very much of a piece. This could almost have been one double album. They were kind of conceived and written in, in the very same period. Um, arguably, the songs in this record are stronger. It's kind of, they've kind of found their feet by this point. So, famously, so this is... This is recorded in Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house in Los Angeles, which is a detail often. <laughs> How did you end up there? You could have done this anywhere. Like, yeah. sorry. And they talk about that in interviews. This is a famous clip. Where we saw we were we decided we recorded in Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house. I'm like, why? <laughs> How is that? <laughs> so let me go in. So I thought we'd record the album in you know, Russ Abbott's attic. <laughs> Fuck! How did you get there? Yeah. But it's got some of the famous songs on it, up on Cripple Creek. Yeah. He's on it. There's a lot of that. When people think of the band and what's peak period band, it's this record. So, mm. sorry, I've, I've, I've over-rambled. No, no, so, no, you haven't. Um, enjoy the album, guys. No, no, no we, we, we want... We, oh, just a minute. <laughs> I thought you winded me up here. No, 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 no. I just wanted to talk about some of the songs on the album. And the, I want to leave time to talk about Old Brother as well. So, but we've only got five minutes left, but... We, well, can, thought, we can run over I slightly. Thought, I thought we came back after the break. If I'm we do, we do. OK, then. But then uh, we'll there'll them. be other questions then. I know Amanda's got oh, 17 God. questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, let's pick three of the songs from, as I've done in this book. So, Up on Cripple Creek, we mentioned. Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is probably their most famous song. It's been covered by everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is about. Well, I know what it's about, but I don't. Not sure what to say about the song. It's an anti-war song. I think you can read that into it. I think what works about the song is, uh, like all great songs, like all great lyrics, it just paints such a vivid picture. Um, I'd never ever thought in my life about that milieu, about living in the south and watching the virtually Lee, the train blow by and thinking about that. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the documentary, the Chuck Berry movie that Taylor Hackford directed called Hail Hail Rock and Roll yeah. great rock movie, but there's a moment in that where Bruce Springsteen is talking about the impact Chuck Berry made in him and he says, there's a line in a Chuck Berry song where he says, she, Nadine is the song, and he says, she turned and doubled back, started walking to a coffee-coloured Cadillac. Bruce Springsteen goes, I've never seen a coffee-coloured Cadillac in my goddamn life. Oh. But I sure as hell know what one looks like. Yeah. And Robbie Robertson does that in this record. It's just these subjects uh, about the South and... 
that I that never crossed my mind in my life, but suddenly that's what great writing does, whether it's books or whether it's songs. Something that has never crossed your mind before that you suddenly think, of course that's what it's like. I've always thought that's what that's like. No, you didn't. Somebody put that in your head yeah. uh, very powerfully. That That's kind of what as a songwriter he did, you know. And that in, and with Rag Mama Rag as well that's on this, this it's a simple kind of, I don't know, brothel-based song. Junk, junk band. But, but yeah, junk band song. It's even got a tuba on it, hasn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. But it, um, the realness of it, I want to say authenticity, it's an overused word, but the realness of, of it as well. It sounds like it could have been on one of them old Yazoo Barrelhouse compilations from 1920s, mm-hmm. and yet it's recorded in 1968. Or, 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 a, or a John Hammond sort of field recording. Yes, you know, it's like, it like, does sound like I, a John I, Hammond I, I think they had these things so uh, deeply in their bones, you know? And where people go wrong when you... They, they were kind of getting it from the source. I think they were close enough to it. Art copied from art leads to mannerism, and people can kind of detect that. You've kind of copied that from another band who's done it. I, I think they were taking influences from... And Robbie Robertson talks about this in The Last Waltz, about the traditions in this house, like the carnival and the kind of music that we played there. They were kind of... They were tapping into something a bit more primeval than just copying another band. Are they tapping into stories that Lee Von Elm was telling them, do you think? I think that, he, was a, that, that, that was a part of it. I mean, yeah. and this is another thing that, you know, to extend it into literature, who was the real beatnik with Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy? Neil Cassidy was the real beatnik, yeah. but Kerouac wrote the book. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I think Levon Helm was the real thing of all this southern connection we're talking about, but I don't think he could articulate that in the way that Robbie Robertson could, um, which led to a lot of bad blood later in life between those guys, but... Again, I hate to say it, but that's art. The art is kind of seeing that thing and uh, and channeling it, you know. Because Lee Von Elm was seeing his thoughts and and words in Robbie Robertson's songs. Yeah. And thinking that he must have, I must have written that because that's what I think. Well, I think you know, Lee Von was a couple of years older than Robbie, and I think yeah. when they met, it was a big brother relationship for yeah. Robbie, you know. But I think Robbie was. One hesitates to use the word smart, certainly more ambitious, I think, um, but sharper in a kind of artistic way of mining that for what was mm. valuable. We should have another clip, I think. When we were doing the band album and I was writing this song, um, my daughter Alexandra was just born, so she was a newborn baby. So when I was writing this I had to be very quiet because it was like the, the baby sleeping don't make any noise so uh, um, I just you know I, I, I kind of got used to the idea of working in quietness we're talking about all these subtleties and everything and it was not just about wanting to play in subtleties it was about having to play in subtleties so in this song uh, you can hear it was kind of what, where, where it came from
looking at the time now and we have run out we're over, over this time you guys will be down for a drink we'll, we'll, we'll. <laughs> I, I think it's more appropriate to talk about Old oh Brother after the break sure after, sure is that alright I, I just see quite a good postscript yeah. to that clip yeah, so yeah. the tiny baby Robbie's talking about writing the song Not To Wake Up Alexandra 35 years after he wrote that song I get an email from Alexandra oh, Robertson yeah. to say I've, I've just finished reading your book, uh, the band, and if you're ever in LA, I'd love to have lunch. So I wind up having lunch with Robbie Robertson's daughter in Beverly Hills, and she's lovely, really nice. She's like, well, pretty much the same age. I think she's a year older than, younger than me. And she works for Warner Brothers in music publishing. Lovely, lovely girl. And um, we have a great lunch. And, she's, and as we're leaving, almost as an afterthought, she goes to me, because to tap into what you're saying, like all the time I was writing that this novel, Newsroom Big Pink, I was thinking, what the fuck am I doing? I mean, my God, what if one of the band reads this? Am I going to get lynched? Am I going to get lynched by the fans? Will I get lynched by them? I mean, who, you know. And so we're finishing this lunch, and Alexandra says to me, um, oh, by the way, I wasn't sure whether to mention this, but uh, my dad read the book when it was lying around. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, he said it was, was that guy in the room. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I wandered off, it was in Beverly Hills, and I wandered off down Rodeo Drive just going, I mean, even after 20 years of doing this thing and you do things, and that's still the single biggest compliment I've ever received in my writing career, that I wrote this book thinking, oh, God, how right can we get this? And that Robbie Robertson said was that guy in the room. It was, you know, that was a... Fantastic. Amazing. That's a perfect way to end Thanks ever so much, John. Thank you. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. Before they made um, the album and, and music from Big Pink, they were, um, and before they joined Bob Dylan, they, they were known as the Hawks, weren't they? Mm -hmm. And I don't, you probably know this, if you've seen uh, one of the greatest concert movies ever made, The Last Waltz, um, they, um, Ronnie Hawkins, the great Canadian rock and roll singer, met the band, and they were only kids, weren't they? They were 19, 20. 18, yeah, 19, 20, and he asked them to, to be his backing band. And he said, I, I can't pay you much money, but you'll get more pussy than Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you two. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet note. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, as we were listening to the album there, it's kind of breaking my heart looking at that photograph from the cover because, of course, four out of five of those guys are dead now. There's only, you know, and, uh, if you were a betting person, you'd probably bet that Garth Hudson <laughs> might have 
she was the oldest one in the group, right? And yeah, Robbie obviously only just went a few months ago, so that's kind of impactful to me. That you know, you'd bet that guy's going to die first, right? Come on, he already Doctor Foghorn Leghorn already looks like he's 150 in 1968. But it's, you know, you imagine the wolf all fading out, don't you? And just that, just it's the only one left alive. But I thought um, if we could just flip back and, you know, we're listening there, if we just get the clip from the last waltz of um, the night they drove old Dixie down. How old is Garth now? Is he 85 He's 80, or something? 85, yeah. yeah. So I, I delight in telling my fellow people things that they might not know. So this was filmed in November the 26th, 1976. Six days later, uh, a pop band went on the Bill Grundy show in London on December the 1st, 1976. Literally six days after. What exactly tomorrow is the anniversary of that appearance? And what happened there was something that was a little underground movement exploded into mainstream culture. And what it was was the, the end of this, the death of this. So what we're kind of looking at there are these dinosaurs, very beautiful dinosaurs and their flares and their scarves and their wide lapels and all this thing. And it's fantastic. But if you look up into the rafters, what you think are spotlights are actually, one of them is a meteorite, and it's called punk rock. And it's going to hit that stage in six days' time, and that is all gone. It's all over, which is just fascinating to me that it's kind of, it's the last waltz. It's not just the last waltz of that group. It's like the final, last big hurrah of that culture that was about to be swept away by this whole new force of youth. And, and that's because that's what music is. It regenerates and meteorites hit the earth and the old stuff is gone. So uh, I just wanted to, to make that point because it's fascinating to me that the last waltz happened six days before the Sex Pistols appeared in the Bill Grundy show. <laughs> well, um, uh, and then... And then 76, eight, eight years after that, in the middle of the coal miners' strike, at a stately home less than three miles from here, the band came back. They did, yeah. And, I mean, we were there. We, we saw it. And, and the way this story was teed up to me, I thought it was going, the punchline was going to be, and they were staying at the same guest house. <laughs> Sad, sadly, my friends, that was not the punchline. What is there fucking four seasons around here? <laughs> And the last Walls film was premiered on BBC. That night. On BBC yeah. Two that night, they played at Hostel. That yeah. night, which I, which I bizarrely watched with my dad. I mean, I was only like 17 or something. I don't remember much about it. My dad was that kind of generation of men. My dad would watch anything on television until 3 o'clock in the morning, like crown bowling from Japan. <laughs> I'm there. Uh, and, and BBC Two were showing the last ones, and I remember the chandeliers 
in the stage deck or uh, I was too young for the music to really connect with me because I was kind of in the Sex Pistols world. But I remember me and my dad bizarrely <laughs> watching The Last Walls together at like midnight on BBC Two, 1984. Which you've teed it up nicely again because your dad is mentioned quite a lot in this book. <laughs> we won't dwell too long on this book tonight, but um, this is... A book I've read in the last two days, as I said at the beginning, it's it's a hell of a piece of work. It's it's brutally honest. It's kind. Uh, it's about family dynamics written in a way that you'll rarely rarely ever see. Um, ostensibly, it's about John's brother's suicide, but it's about a lot more. It's about human kinship. It's about the way we relate to one another. It's about love and in its many different and splendid ways and it's about old fashioned things that don't happen anymore now you know well kids still still get belted um, but they take you to court then <laughs> um, uh, but in this one they just go back to school or back to work or, or whatever so it's it's a very honest portrayal of working class life in, in a Scottish town not that different to Featherston. I like that. You mm. can build kids today, <laughs> but shit will happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. There will be consequences. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a great book. Now, it is a departure for you because it's your first memoir and you've tackled something... I mean, people who write memoirs usually write about the lives they've lived. And it is about a life that you've lived, but it's about something that awful that happened in the middle of it. Yeah. Why did you? Why could you bring yourself to write it now, John? It, it took it took a long time to get to this book. Ten ten years till I started writing it, and it took three years writing it because um, Nabokov said that experience for a novelist experience takes a few years to distill down through you before you can write about it. Uh, his analogy was that it, it takes a, a, a thousand tonnes of rose petals to make a litre of rose oil. So mm. it takes a long time when you're writing a novel for you've experienced something to process it properly. I think when we come to these huge seismic life things like the violent premature death of an immediate family member. It takes a longer time for that to come down through you. And so it took me 10 years till I could approach the subject properly. Um, mm. In a way, you know, there's an old saying that you don't choose your subjects, they choose you. Uh, also, I find that books for me begin, begin as an occasional thought that becomes a recurring thought that eventually becomes the only thought possible, that you can't get away from it. The book's saying to you, this is time to do this. So it took me a while to, to get to the book. And also, I'm a, kinda, I'm a bit of a fiend for structure and for making it interesting for the reader. Um, and it took me a long time to know what the structure of this book would be. But I get sent so many, because I wrote a novel called Kill Your Friends, it was very successful, it's set in the music industry and was made into a movie. I get sent all these musicians' memoirs all the time. And a lot of these books, I read them and I think, this book is literally a list of 
everything that happened to you from being born to typing the last sentence in this fucking book. Could you not have discriminated? Choose mm. things that are interesting and thread them together in an engaging way. So it, it took me a while to realise the structure of the book is basically, to give you the short version, my brother... Uh, uh, let me backtrack a wee bit. To give you the elevator pitch of the book, it wasn't just about suicide. The question of the book was, how does the black sheep in a family, because we've all got them, how does the black sheep become the black sheep? Because in nature, they're just born black. But it, in, I think with us, it doesn't happen like that. Things happen to do with family order, birth dynamic, um, little bumps along the road. So I was kind of trying to answer how could me and my brother were born into the same working class Scottish council estate family. And I went to university and then worked in the music business and then became a novelist and a writer. My brother became a drug dealer who wound up going to Balliney Prison for three years and then killed himself when he was 42. So I thought, how did we fashion such different outcomes from the same raw material? And you understand, what you come to understand is that the raw material isn't exactly the same for both of us. And also, the central subject of the book is suicide. And that's still a very difficult thing for a lot of people. But for, for my mum, for instance, my mum's 81, and in her lifetime, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground. That was still such a taboo thing. I was watching BBC Breakfast the other week, and there were these mums who were marching to raise awareness of teenage suicide because they all had teenage children who killed themselves. And one of the women was being interviewed, and she said, well, you know, when something happens like the... what." the thing that happened with my son. And I thought, she can't... That woman can't say the word. She can't say the word suicide. Even now, today, it's a very difficult thing for people to navigate. So I thought, if I can write the book and get it right, it might be a way to have a conversation about it. Because suicide, like depression, which leads to suicide very often, it likes darkness. It likes the shadows. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't like sunlight. You know, it doesn't like people talking about it and exposing it. So the, it struck me that the book might be a way to sort of drag that into the sunlight and say, here we are, here's a family who have been through this. You know, this is my truth, tell me yours. Let's, you know. Mm. I'm going to throw it open to the floor now. Amanda, you've got a question at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just um, pass uh, uh, John Niven uh, Groupie the microphone. <laughs> Hello. Be afraid. Okay. First, first thing I want to say is, you know, you said the thing about um, sounding like Begbie, which you don't. Uh -huh. The picture. <laughs> I look like Begbie. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, and I picture that being your face when you're talking to the consultants and giving them the shits in the hospital. <laughs> That's how I picture you looking at them. So I do have the German thing going on because I've listened to the Audible today. I've got five minutes left. And I've been very, very emotional ever since because to hear your voice saying those words is is mind-blowingly emotional experience. Um, 
And there's, there's so much, I think people need to be not afraid to read the book thinking it's going to be a sob fest because there is so much love and positivity in it that it's, it's just a joy. If you grew up in the 70s, if you love music, if you have family, you will relate to this book and you will... You will get so much out of it. I can go home then, my work here is done. <laughs> Amanda, thank you, good night. Right. <laughs> Amanda great. has sold the book for me. But what I, what I really... You, um, you talk about having, in the beginning, a series of former selves that you would like to take out and give a beating to. And you, you sort of describe it as a forced confession. So something that's... You go through some uncomfortable, uncomfortable shit that's, you know amazingly honest and you stare it in the face I want to know have you has it helped was it cathartic to do that in any way I, I think there's a misconception about the no, notion of catharsis for writers um, mm, that agree. you write something that so good you know um, my favorite quote in this is from the American crime writer James Elroy who uh, James Elroy and I were published by the same publisher for a while, and we had dinner one night. And some, that, for those of you who don't know, James Elroy's mother was murdered violently, and a lot of his novels kind of rotate around that. And he was asked, was that cathartic for you to write? And James Elroy said, you know what, I like to find the guy who came up with catharsis and get that word printed in a plaque and stick it up his ass. <laughs> It's a no. <laughs> Definitely no. It's, uh, it's, yeah. It doesn't quite work like that. But here's what I would say. Um, it's, uh, what I do, I have, I have one of the most privileged jobs in the world and that I get to go to the desk every day and spend time communing with my dead for as long as I like. So I wrote a novel called The Amateurs many years ago, which my father's a sort of character in, like... I went to the desk every day and sat with my dad for long periods and had dialogue with him and channeled him. And in writing this book, I did the same thing with my brother. And I guess what some people might get out of therapy or out of religion, I get to get that at work, you know, that you spend a lot of time in the mental company of people you've lost or traumatic things, you get to work through it in a way that, if you're doing it right, eventually gets rendered on the page in art that other people can also engage with. So it, it's an incredibly privileged existence in that sense. So that, that I don't know that it's quite as simple as catharsis, but I get to spend a lot of time with subjects that most people don't because most of us have jobs. You're kind and... of creating something positive out of a, your lived experience. And you've got so many lived experiences going on in that book. Many many selves. I think, you you know, you've moved through so many different... Well, we, we, we all do. That's the point I make in the book. That None of us... And it's not entirely my point. It's, I'm, I'm sort of stealing John Updike making his point in his memoir, uh, Self-Consciousness, that none of us are uniform from cradle to grave. We go through this succession of selves. We try on these clothes mm. of the people we're going to be, this identity parade. And that... Most, you know, we all vary from, you know, childhood, probably through for, well, for most men in terms of dress sense, till about the age of 40, 45. And then we sort of, okay, that works, I'm going to stick with that. It was a friend of mine, 
in Glasgow. Um, was talking about some guy they saw on the street, and they went, "Oh, he dressed kind of like you." And I went, "What do you mean? What did I dress like?" Anyway, oh, you know, like post and R. <laughs> Fuck you! I'm reducible to a sort of H and Marks and Spencer's description tag. But I, I think most of us, you you have these former selves who you were until you evolve into hopefully at some point a reasonable facsimile of a human being. But you can look in the book. I say this: you look past that. You look at that identity parade of former selves, and some of them behave better than others. You know. Have you gotten over cringing over the Paul Simonon socks business? No, I don't think I'll. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get over that. He took the piss out of Paul Simonon's socks at one point in his life. Brown socks. <laughs> you'll, you, you, you'll have to read the book. There's a, yeah. there's a recurring thread about yeah. my humiliation at the hands of the Clash and various. <laughs> As, can we ask some more questions? It doesn't have to be about this this book now, but it, on the reflecting on the Thank evening, you, if you want. Re, reflecting on the Sorry, evening, Mr. Mr. Simon Curtis. Oh, this is going to be tougher. Just just an observation about the album. I've never heard the album before. I've really heard nothing by the band. I've come here along curious, and and I did. I, I felt that I felt I heard a couple of later bands in there. But I don't know what you think about influence and all that, but I, heard, I, I think I heard the Eagles in there, and I think I heard uh, Brinsley Schwartz as well. You, you, you're exactly right. You had both those things. Um, the Eagles, I think very specifically, the Eagles took that template of country rock that the band were kind of doing, but subtly and just super pasteurised it for, for, for a huge market. And the, the, I mean, if you read, there's a great book about David Geffen. Uh, that period of the late 60s and what the band were doing fed quite clearly into the early 70s and what became the sort of, depending on your musical taste, but the monster that was the Eagles, you know. It, it, it took sort of, I think, things that were subtle in the band's music and made them very mainstream. That, and that's the culture, you know. That's what the, the other, Hey, I love... I love some of the eagle stuff as much as the next man. I'm not. I'm not a monster, but uh, it, that's a fair point. And I think also in the London pub circuit that Brinsley Schwartz came out of, it was also a similar influence. I think the band's influence at the end of the '60s and into the '70s can't be overstated. Well, so I think uh, people like Nick Lowe had a huge uh, country rock influence. Yeah, I mean, I love Nick Lowe. Yeah. You know, musical genius. Yeah, uh, you, you know the you know the Nick Lowe story with the Bodyguard soundtrack. Is everything? Do you all know that story? Yeah. Well, the song Nick Lowe's song. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? For some reason, ended up being featured in a background scene, almost inaudible, in the Whitney Houston movie The Bodyguard. And so Nick Lowe. He's going about his business in Chiswick, where he lived, and, you know, he's making a living. And he opens his post one day trying to check, like, $1.2 million. 
his share of the Bodyguard soundtrack. Because that soundtrack, because Whitney Houston was on it at the peak of Whitney Houston, sold 11 million copies in America. And this piece of one song. <laughs> oh, I love that story with Nick Lawler. Can I, okay, gas bill, insurance, going in the house, you should have $1.2 million fucking dollars. <laughs> This is in like 1989 when $1.2 million could buy you a house in Notting Hill. <laughs> Any more questions, please? I've got one, actually. Is it fair to say your, your illustrious career as an A&R man came to an end and this is why you started writing when you fucked off Coldplay? <laughs> <laughs> This story gets retold, and it's often grossly... Actually, it was Coldplay and Muse. And, and I'd do the same again. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> thank you. Um, it's not... People, people, people tell it as if it's, so it's the Kit Kat advert, like Chris Martin's sitting in front of me, and I go, you can't sing, can't play, you look fucking awful, fucker. It's, it wasn't like that. I just, I wasn't an A&R guy in the business at the time. Those demos were doing the rounds, and uh, I got the Coldplay demo and the Muse demo. They were about the same time, 97, 98. And I just thought they were... They were all, in my defence, Yellow wasn't on the Coldplay, the first demo, because so, yeah, that was undeniably a hit. But they just they were both very sub-Radiohead. And I thought, I, mean, I really like Radiohead, but I thought the last thing the world needed in 1998 was another Radiohead. I thought, well, yeah, in my stupid mind, I thought we were fine, but I'd made this mistake before. I remember after, when I was at London Records, we nearly signed the Spice Girls, and I thought, oh, well, that's gone, you know, won't be another one of them. And, like, and then there was Sugar Babes and there was All Saints. I was like, it's like the same way, you know, take that. And then there was Boyzo and then there was like, how many fucking photocopies of your own anus do you need? It, 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 it turns out quite a lot. People are like, you know, let's see this fucking barrel. There's no bomb. It's just... <laughs> this barrel's going to Australia. I, I, I used to think, okay, I get it. Okay, you've won a Spice Girls, you've won a Boys, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, another one, what another one? What a Westlife, what a fucking whatever. Well, yeah. Again, why I wasn't a very good A&R man. Okay, I, I thought the barrel was finite. It's not. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, for anybody that likes cultural reference points in, in books that they're reading, this is, is full of them and it takes you back to when you read a good book that's full of cultural re reference points you always takes you to the place that you were when that happened as well and i just want to tell a very quick anecdote about there's a there's a scene in there where, where uh, robert kennedy's death is announced and i i remember it well because i it was it from big pink in, no in, in in your in old brother oh right there's there's a reference to that I can, maybe Maybe it's the other one. I, I've read it. I've read it in the last two days. So, <laughs> uh, and it's Robert Kennedy's death. And on on the day Robert Kennedy's death was announced on the wireless, I was in in the house next door to my granny's, where three elderly spinster sisters lived. They'd all worked in the mills at Bradford, and they they were in their old age by now. But I love them, and I'm laid on the rug in front of their fire. I, I, I don't know. Be nine or ten years old, and uh, 
the BBC announcer said that the death of Robert Kennedy has been reported in America today. And Doris, one of the sisters, said, Eee, there's all a summit, isn't there? <laughs> it's, it's that thing, you know, the big world Doris, comes, becomes uh, Doris, very small. I think Doris got on well with my mum. If you read, if you read, and your auntie Bell is it? Oh, yeah. Auntie Bell, they got yeah. on well with them. Yeah. But the, the experience tonight, I, I was saying outside to Rev and to, to you, I've never had this for years, um, sitting listening to a record in a room full with other people and just really nobody's on the phone and everybody's listening to the record. Um, my friend Keith, God bless him, who's also mentioned in the book, who died five years ago, he would do an event every Christmas called his John Peel Night where everyone had to bring one record, one track that they loved that year. And there were about 12 of us used to go. And you, you had the rules were, when somebody played the song, you had to sit there and shut the fuck up, and you went on your phone and you listened to the song, you know? And it was, you'd get through the whole night and each listen to the song. So I hadn't, the only times most of us, I think, listened to music, if you're a certain age, in a completely isolated, listening environment is in the car you know so I've done a lot of listening obviously listening to this album the way up here knowing I was going to do this but it's been such an amazing experience to sit in this room with like you know 40 or many people and just listening to the same record together so thank you for letting me be part of that I really enjoyed it That's a very good way to finish, isn't it? I, I've got one last question. Will you come back again, John, please? Oh, I'd, I'd love to. If you can find some pretext to have me, I'd love to. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> well, you, you're going to build the four seasons here, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to do some thank yous because... And, uh, Ian, thank you. What a great interview. Yeah. And a friend of us all. Do you know where that? You know where that comes from. A friend of us all. The concert for Bang Bangladesh. That's how George Harrison introduces Dylan. I like. I like to introduce a friend of us all. So you, you learn something every day. Ian Clayton. Hi. The truly wonderful. Thank you, John, for coming all this way, and thank you for tonight. You've been absolutely know, my, my, superb. My pleasure. Thank you, John Newman. <laughs>